Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second weekly episode here at Market Saints. Happy November. Fall weather is finally getting into full swing here. Yeah, apparently that means Christmas in St. Andrews. Yeah, I got to be honest. I was shocked. I got woken up the day after Halloween in the morning to town officials putting up laurels and lights here in town. Pretty crazy, but I'm kind of here for it. In my opinion, Christmas should start 60 days outside of the holiday and kind of get like a really good countdown going. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're going to get right into the first segment that we uh, also started last weekly episode with, cash and checks and breaking banks. So I'm already breaking the point of this segment, and today I actually brought two cash and checks, and I do not have a break in banks because this was just, in my opinion, a great week in the stock market, and I, I think there's some really interesting stuff to talk about. So I'm starting here with Etsy. I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with it. Uh, essentially, it's an eBay mixed with Shopify, but for art. So it was nearly up 15% on Thursday because their quarter three earnings were released. And basically in the third quarter, Etsy's GMS, which is their gross merchandise sales, were $3.1 billion, which was 17% higher year over year. You know, it is important to point out that this was on top of the massive surge the company saw during the 2020 shutdown. So that's a, that's a big deal. Even excluding sales of face masks, which were a major revenue driver last year, Etsy's GMS is 138% higher than it was in two, 2019, which is pretty insane and, and shows why the stock is performing as such so far. So on top of that, like let's look at some user performance statistics. Average buyer now spends 20% more time on the platform than a year ago. So they're spending, and this is only active buyers, so this is not inactive buyers. And this is compared to COVID times when people were working from home and just scrolling through Etsy and eBay all day, and they're still getting a higher and longer retention rate than they did last year in COVID, which was crazy. So Cole, do you think that Etsy has more room to grow in this industry, or are they going to kind of run into a wall with other giants like eBay? Yeah, so that that's a great question. And essentially... I think that they will not run into these giants because they really have like a hold on this market because it's a niche. They're very eBay Shopify-esque where I talked about how people basically host their own little small businesses on Etsy, but it's specifically for artists, which is something that, you know, they have a stronghold on in comparison to some of these other giants. And I want to talk a little bit about, I did some research and I found recently Etsy had pretty two, two pretty big uh, acquisitions this year. So they integrated uh, this app that they acquired Depop into their software. So Depop is, uh, it was a $1.6 billion acquisition. So it was a pretty big deal. And this was in June, 2021. So what Depop is, I wasn't familiar, familiar with it until beforehand, but I did some research. And essentially it's a secondhand clothing app and it's to tap into the Gen Z market. That's why Etsy acquired it. So it's like a fashion focused, you know, app of the younger generation where 90% of Depop's 30 million users are under the age of 26, which shows you right there, they're tapping into the Gen Z, you know, pool there. And I personally know students who have Etsy accounts and that are under the age of 26. And, you know, they're very fashion focused and they're selling earrings, you know, homemade earrings and necklaces and whatnot. And this is exactly the time, the, the kind of market that Etsy is trying to tap into even further. They already have a stronghold on it, but they're trying to even increase that hold. 
Cole, that was really spot on. I think that Etsy really has like control of that market. It's very artisanal. It's very custom. Whereas eBay is more selling grandma's junk. Um, so that, that I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, most definitely. And you know, I think that these acquisitions recently just further show the direction that this company wants to go in and their stock prices reflecting all of their recent success. So moving on, I'm going to move on to my second hot stock of the week, I guess. And this time around, it's a company called Global Foundries, GFS, and they are a semiconductor manufacturer. For those of you that don't know what a semiconductor is, it's kind of hard to explain in layman terms, but essentially it functions as like a hybrid of a conductor and an insulator. And they're primarily used in electronic devices, including chips, transitors, integrated circuits, basically anything that's computerized or uses radio waves depends on semiconductors. So these are super important. So this semiconductor manufacturer, Global Foundries, climbed 6.2% to just over 63.50 on the day today so far. And its initial public offering, by the way, which was only last week, it hasn't been public very long. The stock has gone nowhere but up. It has gained five straight trading session days in a row. And I really think that this is coming from the unprecedented global semiconductor shortage that's currently plaguing the industry in general. And this is also plaguing the automotive manufacturers in particular, and it is said to be nowhere near over. And this is coming from the supply chain shortage, right? I talked about it last week in my uh, interview with CEO and founder David Pinino, where we talked about, you know, uh, Logic Source, his company is a non-resale goods uh, sourcer and procurement company. And this supply chain issue is causing worldwide shutdowns and holdups. And this is even prevalent again in the semiconductor market right here that I'm talking about. And basically for the automotive industry, right, a deficit of semiconductors for the automotive parts is single-handedly reducing car production this year by an estimated 7.7 million units. That's really bad news for car stocks. And, you know, anyone that wants to buy a car this year at a reasonable price, but on the other hand, this is great news for Global Foundries, which in September promised to double its automotive chip output this year. So let's think about this. Twice the production should logically result in twice the windfall profits that semiconductor manufacturers are earning this year. So even on top of this, Global Foundries has said it's going to spend $6 billion this year to expand chip production and keep on capitalizing on the situation as long as it lasts. So this is you know pretty bad news for a lot of other companies and industries that rely on semiconductors, but it's great for you know Global Foundries and these semiconductor you know. Uh, producers and manufacturers because they're in such high demand right now. All right, now moving on to Stu and breaking banks because I had two cash and checks of the week. Stu's picking up the slack here on the other side and he's got two breaking banks for his part of the segment. Stu, take it away. All right. Thanks, Cole. So my first breaking bank is going to be for all the fat kids out there like me. Peloton is going down. Peloton is suffering for a multitude of reasons, um, but first, let's just take a couple steps back and talk about why they were up so high, why they were flying high. The pandemic was obviously very lucrative for Peloton. People were stuck at home, gyms were shut, making the Peloton a very attractive option for the physically active. And beyond that, companies like Goldman Sachs actually offered employees Pelotons to maintain mental health. Therefore, they had lots of sales, lots of people using it. It was a very desirable asset. 
But now that we're emerging from this pandemic, it seems that people are opting back into the traditional gym experience. The demographic of users that were averaging over 15 workouts a month for Peloton have recently dropped closer to two. And all of this has led into Peloton missing targets and falling short recently. Their revenue only grew 6% in the last year, and treadmill and bike sales fell by 17%. And they ended up cutting their revenue forecast by a billion dollars, obviously something a stockholder never wants to hear. So obviously all of this led to their stock price dropping 28%. You know, and what really is going on there is the fact that you have these outside pressures. Now it's all about comp- competition again, as in any classic economic situation. You're looking at other options. When the Peloton was the only thing during the pandemic. Now you're looking at people going back to traditional gyms. Maybe they're buying the less expensive Nordic track. I mean, at the end of the day, a Peloton is really just a stationary bike with a computer screen strapped to it. So it didn't take long for other workout companies to catch on. In tragic news, sports gambling industry is taking a hit again. Um, I'm focusing on Penn National here. For those of you who aren't familiar with them, they operate casinos as well as sports sports books, which are related to gambling on games. You are not very familiar. So obviously their stock has been up and down due to the pandemic, and they were expected to emerge pretty victoriously out of this. So taking it back a few steps here and talking about what they did and how their stock has been performing. Going into the pandemic, predictions were obviously very low, and they suffered quite, quite large losses. They were able to rebound and actually become part of the S&P 500 index through their acquis- partial acquisition of Barstool Sports. However, more recently, after third quarter, lo- third quarter losses and massive misses, their stock has been plummeting. While Penn was working out how to put out the fire from their disastrous third quarter, their, their affiliations with Barstool Sports came back to haunt them. Business Insider released a piece accusing Barstool founder Dave Portnoy of sexual misconduct. And all of this combined led to a 21.1% loss in their stock value yesterday. In turn, the stock has lost $2.69 billion of their market cap. And for those of you who are not aware of what a market cap is, it's the aggregate value of all the shares of stocks that a company has out there. And... To put this even into more perspective and context, this is obviously disastrous, but this is the most any gambling stock has lost in the twice in the last 27 years. So, you know, quick question for you. So the headline of this Penn National downfall is really Barstool. And Barstool is really only a small percentage holding of Penn National's companies. But because Barstool gets so much limelight from their social media presence, how do you think that this affects them. And and even on top of that, how much does Penn National even own in Barstool? What's their stake? All right, so I'll tackle that one first. Penn National actually only has a 36% share of Barstool Sports, which in the grand scheme of things is not a majority share. They're minority shareholders. So it's kind of incredible to think how this Barstool scandal has just affected their stock price. But like you said, Barstool is Barstool. When you say the word Barstool, people think Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy, gambling, part of my take. They think about Barstool, and whether they think about it positively or negatively, people have an opinion, everyone. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know exactly what it is and what they're doing. Yeah, especially in this generation, too. It's like essentially a household name. Every college campus, Barstool has an account on behalf of, and I don't know a college kid that hasn't heard of Barstool in the U.S. or even in the U.K. for the most part. Yeah, and even if you think about our parents, I'm sure everybody knows exactly who he is due to he being Dave Portnoy. But 
just that fact that it's such a prolific company in the media, it's just it's dragging Penn through the mud with them. Yeah, absolutely. That really just shows Barstool's presence and power. I mean, Dave Portnoy has even been featured on major cable news. He's been on CNBC. He's been interviewed on Fox. He's been all over the place, not only for just gambling, but also for political opinions, amongst other things. But he's definitely a massive name that even supersedes just Barstool itself. Alrighty, now to our last segment here. We're actually going to do a little bit of a combination here with the Rock Report and the takes. Essentially, we have a reading here. We're going to cite an article here from BBC, and I'm going to read a portion of it, and then Stu's going to read a portion of it, and then we're going to talk about it and give our opinions on it. So essentially, it's about Yahoo moving out of China over challenging business conditions. So the firm said its decision was due to an increasingly challenging business and legal environment in the country. Yahoo users in China are now greeted with a message saying its sites are no longer available. The company says Yahoo products and services remain unaffected elsewhere around the world. In a statement, it says, Yahoo remains committed to the rights of our users and free and open internet. We thank our users for their support. Yahoo's move follows closely behind Microsoft's announcement last month that it was removing LinkedIn, its business-focused social network, from China, something it was also blamed on a significant, more challenging operating environment and greater compliance requirements. So China's in the midst of a large-scale crackdown on big tech companies, both from the U.S. and its own native giants. A range of laws passed in recent years contribute to what Yahoo and others characterize as a challenging market. The Personal Information Protection Law, or PIPL, which came into effect on the 1st of November, is one of them. Designed as a Chinese data protection law, it introduces a range of regulations about how data can be collected and stored, with the threat of potentially massive fines up to 5% of a company's annual turnover. Foreign entities processing user information, such as through web cookies and services, must have a presence or appoint a representative on the Chinese mainland responsible for enforcement. In some ways, it's not dissimilar from privacy-focused laws such as GDPR in Europe, but the, pol- the political environment is significantly different in China from that in many Western nations with strict censorship requirements. Okay, so that was the reading there, and now we're going to move on to a little bit more of an opinion-based discussion here. So let's start with you, Stu. Break it down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just to start, I think you have to look at the fact that the Chinese market is just so large and critical to these companies. It's it's not even fathomable to consider how many users you're just throwing away by moving out of China, which means that these tech companies are being so clearly suppressed by the Chinese involvement and censorship that they just they can't do it. And so what I really think is going to happen if if China does not change their approach to these companies, there's going to be great opportunities for new Chinese companies or, you know, more acceptable companies in the Chinese government eyes to emulate a Google, a Yahoo, a LinkedIn. And even, I don't think you're going to have many copyright issues, but you could make, you know, just a different version of it. And it's a great opportunity to make a lot of money. So thinking about this from a capitalistic standpoint, it's obviously very hard for these companies to exist within the Chinese population because of all of the regulations that they have to follow. So it's very hard for them to even properly market their services because of all the rules and regulations that they have to abide by. Long-term growth-wise, of course, this is going to hurt Yahoo. It's going to hurt any company that can't 
hit a potential tar- target audience. And China is obviously around like 1.5 billion people, which is an unfathomable size market. It's a massive company or uh, country rather. And what is that like five times bigger than the U.S. population around? It's ludicrous. So I think that this will hurt their long time growth purely numbers wise, just because they're not able to, you know, market their services to as many people. But at the same time, neither are all of their competitors, right? So Google, Bing, neither of these big search engines that are in direct competition with Yahoo are able to market their services in China. Well, Cole, here's where the issue is. So those are the existing competitors. But like I said, you know, the lack of these companies, it's, it's, it's creating a void. I mean, that's just undeniable. So when a company does fill that void, which I'm assuming is going to be a Chinese-based company, they won't be restricted from entering the U.S. And then they would, in theory, become the world's predominant search engine. Something like that is plausible. But I think that in today's day and age, when people are very focused on not only the company, but also the virtues of the company themselves, I think that Google and Bing and Yahoo have such a hold already on the international world, aside from you know some countries that may restrict their services, that I don't see a company like that being able to be overtaken. They've been relevant for too long since the inception of the internet, and I just I don't see it be I don't see it to be possible for them to be overtaken, especially at such a rapid rate. Well, I'm just gonna play devil's ad- advocate here with you for a second. I mean, just look at Facebook. I mean, I mean, they've just changed their name because the world pretty much has acknowledged that their their ethos isn't exactly pure. So I mean, we'll have to see play that by ear and see how it goes. But I think that could be a great argument for what we're going forward here with. You know, Facebook might not have the greatest track record, which is why we talked about it last week that we think that they rebranded. But they are still killing it because people rely on their services so much because they're so well established. So if Facebook started now with these privacy issues that they have, nobody would use the service. The reason that it is still successful with its maybe sketchy past is because it's already been so ingrained in society. But what is society doing? Holding Facebook accountable, which is why they're now rebranding themselves and promising on a brighter future for them and turning a new page. Yeah, Cole, I get what you're saying about none of them being able to move into that space and how they're all missing out on the same market share. But at the same time, I'd be cautious of a takeover of almost something like TikTok that kind of came in and took over the entire space. Yeah, absolutely. That is something that you most definitely need to be wary of. But at this point, I kind of think society has reached a point and it's been very accelerated in the last couple of years where I'm not entirely sure a platform knowingly like that would have the ability to take off, especially in the search engine specific industry rather than maybe like a social media. All right, guys, that's the show here for uh, the first week here in November. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, I just want to say thank you and shout out to the people that have reached out with feedback and just what they think of the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really helpful. And uh, anything you have to say, please reach out. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to improve week by week, and uh, we're really excited to continue to bring you guys this show. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.